my heart, my heart is for revival. And it's really, it's really, you see that in, in as we study this, this book, as we, and really, almost any message that I, that I preach, at some level, it comes back to, God, we want you to come and do what you do, and we want to just be along for the ride, and if you can use us, use us. Like, we, we're just, like, I, we just want him. And even as they were singing this morning, the, the thought came is that it's not just about what God brings, it's also about what God cuts out. Like, and we, we get, sometimes we get focused on what God's cutting and we don't allow him to fill. And sometimes we get focused on what we want God to fill and we don't realize, oh, something has to go. And, and that's part of this whole uh, deal of 1 Corinthians is, is you're seeing a church that was planted by Paul, the church in Corinth. And, and he planted this church, and he, he, the whole idea was that this church would impact the culture, and yet the culture started impacting that church. He planted it with the idea that this church would have revival. It wouldn't just be a Holy Spirit bless me club, but that what happened in that building would go out and impact that whole city and that whole region. That was his thought. Four years later, that wasn't happening, and he's saying, hey, let's get back to like the reason why we planted this in the first place. In, in other words, we need to start having revival here. You revive something that's dead or, or mostly dead, like, uh, like our Princess Bride people, right? Uh, okay, anyways, if, if, if you get that, you get that. And, and so that's, if you revive something that's either dead or mostly dead. And he's coming back to this church. He wrote this letter, and he's like, let's revive this. And here's, not only do we want to add something in, but we want to cut something out. We've been spending quite a few weeks on the part of 1 Corinthians that would really, everyone say rebuke. Okay, good. You guys are, you guys are with me. Uh, that, that's, part of, that's the part we've been spending on, where Paul's been, been really kind of uh, laying it on thick with the areas of sin, the areas where they've, where they've missed it. And the, the first Corinthians is actually split into two parts. The first part is that. The second part, he's answering a bunch of their questions that they have. Well, we're going to start answering their questions next week. This is the last week of rebuke, this, uh, hopefully. This is, the, this is the last week where we, we start to focus in on, on one. The, I'm going to zero in on one thing um, today. Um, and, I, and I believe it's something that can fly under the radar. Um, how many know that there's like obvious sin that we're just like, yep, that's sin and we need to get rid of it? How many know that there's sometimes there's just things that fly under the radar that we just, it, would, if you knew it was wrong, wouldn't you just want to know? If you knew, like, oh, man, and the Holy Spirit may want to highlight something to you. Maybe you're doing fine, and it's just me. I'll tell you what, I've been, I've been doing business with the Father behind the woodshed a little bit uh, this week in, in jest, right? Because uh, we have, Daddy, how many know that he loves you? He disciplines those he loves. And so there's this, there's this place in me where I'm just like, oh, oh, if I'm going to preach on that, then i gotta, I got to look at my own, my own life. I hope that you allow Holy Spirit. To look at you, First Corinthians. Let's look at this series and, and kind of uh, kind of backtrack a little bit. Um, week one, we we talked about um, the Apostle Paul. He wrote this letter. He's he is uh, absolutely knows what's wrong in this church, and yet he starts off in the first nine verses about seeing the gold in this church. He's like, you guys are amazing. You guys are awesome. Jesus loves you. The Father loves you. There's so much. Uh, uh, you have, he says you have every spiritual gift, all of this stuff. The first nine verses, he starts that. What if we started that way with people? That, be, that before, we, before we started to, to be the, the sin police, that we started to say, hey, that's not who you really are. 
Like, like there's so much more in you than, than that. And instead of being the sin police, we, we start calling the, the gold out. We start, we start uh, raising the standard and saying, hey, this is what God's called you to be and what called, God's called you to do. Week, week two, we, uh, we hit unity. And I don't know if you remember, but we had the, the children and the youth, and they were all part of this whole thing, and it was amazing. We talked about unity in the body of Christ. Uh, week three was Easter, and we talked about the power of the cross. I like this thought, the message of the cross is the power of God that saved us, it's the power of God that sustains us, and it's the power of God released through us to a desperate and dying world. In other words, um, it's not just a one-time event. The, the, the cross is, uh, it was powerful the moment that you got saved, but it is as powerful today in your life as it was back then. Week four was, we, we talked about the power and the wisdom of God. That a life marked by God's power and wisdom is an indicator of one's love for God and dependence on God and maturity in God. Week five, this we, we started to turn a corner here in week five. And we realized that there's a purpose for unity. Whenever God's talking about unity in church, part of his heart, part of his purpose is that we're all like little building blocks. Uh, Peter says that we are living stones and that we come together as the body of Christ. And it's not just unity because he wants us to play nice together. How many know that's good? And you have children that you wish played nice. And, he's not, and he wants us to, to get along. But it was, it, there's a deeper purpose than the body of Christ just liking each other and getting along. The deeper purpose we find out here in this chapter, in, in chapter 3, was that, is that we come together so that this metaphorical temple of human building blocks becomes a temple that can inhabit his presence. And that when there's this unity, it affects everything that God wants to do. He wants to fill this place with his presence, not just this, this building made with bricks and mortar, but he wants to fill us, the, the corporate temple, the corporate body of Christ, with his power and his presence, and disunity disrupts that. We, we went on to week six, chapter four, started getting a little personal with pride issues. Anybody, anyone besides me ever struggle with pride? And, and having it be about me, and, and, or you start to elevate people a little bit higher than they should because they're starting to take the place Jesus should be, right? And we, chapter 4 was all about that, and Paul was basically saying, hey guys, don't look at me like that. Like, like you're, you're, you're elevating me higher than, than I should. In fact, really, I'm just an under rower. An under rower was, was somebody that was in one of those trireme ships, the, the triple-decker ships. They were in the lowest part. There wasn't any windows. Their whole job was to just row. And, the, and they would row to the beat of the captain's drum. They, they were just staying in cadence with the sound of the... We said, you know what, that's, what, that's exactly what we're supposed to be doing in the body of Christ. That it's not about us. It's all about Him. We're just rowers. We're just trying to stay in tune with His presence, with His voice. We're just under rowers. And Paul says, man, I'm just an under rower. And then by the end of the chapter, he says, you're an under rower too. We're all just under rowers. And then... I thought it was going to be one week, and we ended up spending three weeks on chapter 5 with the man that, that Paul rebukes because he, because he was sleeping with his stepmom. And we, where I thought, hey, let's just hit this really fast and get out. Um, we, uh, we ended up being in there for three weeks talking about this topic, week 7 through 9. What are you tolerating? You ever tolerate something and it just becomes, just becomes something that, that uh, all the, it, you know, it's kind of like the engine running in the background. It's just taking up strength. It's taking up power. And you, 
and you're just, oh, we're just tolerating. They were tolerating something in their church. In that Corinthian church, they were tolerating. He says, you're tolerating it. You're tolerating it just like, just like that church um, in the end of the, the Bible in Revelation when he talks to the church. That he says, he says, you're tolerating Jezebel in your church. He's like, you're just allowing it to be here. But not only were they tolerating it in chapter 5, they were, they were proud of the fact that they were the grace church. We're the church that, that we just allow all, anything goes in our church. And we, we said, you know what? Grace not only lets us off the hook. How many like that? That, that we, I, I am so grateful for the fact that, that uh, my, my sin isn't counted against me now. I'm so thankful that, in fact, the Bible says that he became sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that what? We could be the righteousness of God. And, and then, and so, I mean, it's almost like, have you ever thought it's almost like too good to be true? It's like, is that really, like, I don't have to work for this thing? Like, your righteousness, like, becomes my righteousness? Like, I'm, I'm holy because you're holy, I'm righteous because you're, like, doesn't it almost sound like, well, I don't have to do something? Like, really? And then Paul just says, hey, but also, don't use that freedom as a license for sin. And, and so that was where we were at here with this church in, in Corinth. He's like, whoa, whoa, hold, hold on, hold on. We are, somebody, uh, uh, somebody stop the ship here a little bit and let's talk. What are you tolerating? The thought there was tolerating sin of any kind leads to a lack of awareness of sin's destruction, a lack of effectiveness in reaching the world, and eventually a lack of relationship with God. And so I want to... Um, I want to go into chapter 6 here today, and, and the, we're going we're gonna to talk about idolatry. I'm going to back up a little bit, and so you're, and so, but in a few minutes, we'll, we'll hit idolatry, I promise. When we talk about idolatry, here's the thought. When our hearts turn to a person, an object, or an activity to fulfill something God is designed to fulfill, we are at the very least in danger of modern-day idolatry. We'll just let that sit there for a second if you need to take notes. Isn't that just a, just a sobering thought? When we put anything above God, anything. I mean, it, 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 could, be, it, it could be something that's a, that it could be a person, it could be an activity, it could be any of those things. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we, we kind of, we exit out of chapter 5 where, where he was talking about that man that was in sin. And at the end of chapter 5, he basically says this, you've, you've been getting this backwards, church. You've been judging the world, and instead of judging the body, and he's like, it's inappropriate to judge the world. It's that thought that sinners are supposed to sin. It's the saints that are oftentimes more sinful than the sinning sinners who sin that we have a problem with, right? And so that was, uh, uh, that was Tony Evans, by the way. That wasn't my, that wasn't my uh, quote, but it sounded great. It sounded so good. I thought, oh, they're going to think that was me. I should probably give credit to the man. So, and that's the, that's the issue. He says, hey, you're judging the world, but listen, you're supposed to judge the body. You got this backwards. So chapter 6, it's almost in that same thought. We start talking about lawsuits, 
And I was almost going to skip this, and I just thought I would just, just touch on it for a second. He's, he's talking about uh, civil lawsuits in the body of Christ. And it was just kind of silly because this church, they were, they were going to court and suing each other over, like, money and business transactions. I mean, it'd be like, like Cheryl Willis coming over to James and saying, you borrowed $10,000, and where's my money? He's like, I, I don't know. I just, I, I, you know, I'll have it next week. I'm sorry. And, you know, she either breaks his legs or, you know, I don't know, right? I, you know, because little Cheryl, come on, I don't know. And, or we go to court. And so then they would go to court. And the problem that Paul had with this in chapter 6 was, wait a minute. Didn't I just get done telling you in chapter 5 that you're supposed to, with spiritual judgment, with the Holy Spirit, judge the body, and yet you're taking these matters in the body of Christ to an unspiritual court system. And he's not talking about criminal, uh, you know, like, uh, like felonies. He's not talking about those types. He's talking about civil law. He's like, this doesn't make any sense that you're, you're trying to work these, these things out with the body of Christ with a pagan judge or, or lawyer and and, uh, man, this is crazy. So then he comes down here, and we, we start at chapter 6, verse 7. He says, The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. The, the fact that you guys are, are not able to handle this spiritually, that you're not able to go before the pastor or the elders, be, be, before each other, and just say, Holy Spirit, what's the answer? The, the very fact that you're doing this means you're, just, you're lost, you're defeated already. And he says this, he says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourself cheat and do wrong. And it's this thought of, what's the worst case scenario handling, handling it be, in, in, between ourselves? Well, maybe, maybe Cheryl doesn't get her money back from James. Now, by the way, that's, a, that's just a fictional story. But that, isn't that worst case scenario? I, I, don't, I don't get my, my, my money back. I don't get, my, uh, I don't get, I don't get to win the, the argument. Somebody else wins. I look stupid, whatever it might be. And, and he, Paul's saying, wouldn't, it, wouldn't you rather just be wronged or just allow yourself to be cheated? Wouldn't you just, uh, in the body of Christ, wouldn't you rather just do that instead of taking your case before an ungodly counsel? And he says this. He says, instead... You yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers and sisters. And this is, this is where we're at. Watch as we head into the next verse because um, this is where we start to go in and we're going to talk about idolatry. He says in verse 9, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Anyway, hold, hold your horses. We're, we're just talking, <laughs> we're not talking about like what we were talking about in chapter 5? We're not talking about this, this man who needs to be removed from the church because he's in, in, infecting the body of Christ with sin. We're not talking, we're talking about, about just, you know, business transactions and treating each other. Like, he's like, don't you know that those who do wrong, and there's a whole list, will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes on here. He says, don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols, we'll come back to that, or commit adultery, or are male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or, or are abusive, or cheat people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. 
And this is a good point here in this next verse. Watch. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And we talked in the last few weeks that, that we're, not, we're not talking about a, a one-off sin. How many know that one-off sins are bad before God? Right? Any, any sin's bad. But what we're, what we're talking about is a habitual pattern of, of it's a mindset that is set on, that is set on sin. It's saying, I, I know exactly what this is, and I'm going to do it anyways. And it's, and it's really, in essence, by your actions, you're, you're against against God. And he's talking about these types of, of things, this whole list, and it's, and it's not an exhaustive list, it's a, it's, but it's a list that, it's a good starting place anyways, of, of the, the sins of the flesh. And he's talking about this. And my thought as I was reading this is that um, a lot of this can just be summed up in idolatry. And oftentimes idolatry is something that in, especially in our culture, how, how many of you are like, like idolatry? Isn't that something that was like 4,000 years ago and there was like a big statue and everyone like, like cut themselves and, and like bowed down and did, and did like dances around? Oh, oh, I know what idolatry was. That was that story with Elijah and he dug a, dug a trench and put water in it and, and then the fire of God came. Are we talking about like, well, yes and no. I mean, that is, that is a form of idolatry. I don't know. If you do have an idol that you bow down to, like a stone or gold, I would say knock that off. Like, just knock it off. <laughs> don't do it. Burn, it. burn it up. Throw it in the fire. Tear it down. But for most of us in the Western world, we, uh, that, that's not what we're talking about. And, and so we have a tendency to, to read the rest of the list and, and skip those who worship idols. We're like, well, that was just a cultural thing. That was, just something that, that was just something that happened back then. That was the Corinthian church. That was, they had lots of temples in Corinth. They had, they had all kinds of temples, all kinds of gods. And they had, they had one god that, that, had a, that it was a, a god, like a sex god. And, you, and there was like uh, temple prostitutes and all this stuff. And we're like, well, like, we're not that. And yet I think if we were to look close, we would start to find out that there actually is idolatry uh, in the Western world and oftentimes in the church among believers. Um, I want to turn our focus for the rest of our time out of 1 Corinthians. We're going to go to Exodus 32. Exodus 32. And this is an interesting, an interesting place. And um, John Bevere and Lisa Bevere and, and John's book, um, Killing Kryptonite, and some of their, their teachings that I've listened to has really helped as I've been studying idolatry and as I've been just studying um, the, the church in Corinth and all of this stuff. So I just want to give credit to who credit's due as far as uh, study resources and all of that. And, um, but there was something in, in Exodus 32 that John had, a, he had just a thought on that I hadn't seen before. Um, until I went and studied, and I'm like, oh, you're right. And so I want, we're going to hit that in just a minute. But I want to watch, let's paint the picture of Exodus 32. Um, the, if you go to the beginning of Exodus, where Moses has a, is commissioned by God to go back to Egypt and let my people go, right? And he goes there, and he does this. And what happens when he, go, when he goes before Pharaoh? You guys remember any of the story? How many plagues? Seven. Someone say seven. That was wrong. Ten. Ten plagues. Ten plagues. Are, we, are you guys with me? All right. I mean, I know it's Memorial Day weekend, but come on, people. <laughs> All right. So ten plagues. 
and, and he goes before Pharaoh each time, and each time Pharaoh's like, yeah, I think I might let, let your people go, and then, and, then it, and then it gets better, and then, he, and then he's like, no, you're going to have your people stay, and, and he does this like ten times. Finally, the tenth time, it was the death angel, and, and the firstborn of every house died, um, unless you were um, uh, a Hebrew, and you put the blood over your doorpost, then the death angel passed over, which is where we get the Passover feast from. And it was all kinds of incredible um, symbolic spiritual stuff that happened right there. And, and, but, but this was the scene. So finally, the children of Israel leave Egypt. And how many know, even though they left Egypt, um, some of them didn't actually leave Egypt. And that's what happens a lot of times in, in our walk with God, that we, that we get saved, but we've never really left. The, our mindset is still there, and, and you have full access to freedom, full access to healing, full access to all of this, but we're living as though we're still in Egypt. And it's such an incredible picture. But you, you take those people, and they're on a journey with Moses, and they go through the Red Sea, and we've seen the, the, the Sunday school stories and the flannel graph or veggie tales or whatever, and you see the, the waters part, and they, they walk through and all of this, and they're, they're there, and there's incredible supernatural provision. And then they come to, this, to Mount Sinai, which is where we're at right here. And Moses goes to get instructions from God, and he goes up on the top of Mount Sinai, and, le- and he takes Joshua with him and some people. And they, but the, the most of the, of the people, um, hundreds and thousands, I think there was two million people, were right there at the bottom of this mountain. And Moses is taking a little bit too long. And, I mean, it, it started, you know, days started turning into weeks. And, and we're, we're sitting here like, like 40 days. And they're like, maybe he's not coming back. Like, maybe, maybe he died. Maybe he fell off a rock. Maybe he got eaten by a lion or who knows. They're thinking about all this stuff. And, and so since Moses, since Moses may not be coming back, they turn to his brother Aaron. And this is where we pick up here. Exodus 32, verse 1, it says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Now notice, they they haven't said we don't know what's become of God. They just don't know what's become of God of Moses. And Aaron said to them, break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made and molded a a calf. Then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now stop there for a second. Were they confused? Like were they all, do you think that they forgot how they got out of Egypt? Do you think that they forgot who, who the one was that, that rescued them from Egypt and took them on this journey? They look at this and they say, this is your God who brought you out. Do you think they, were, they forgot? I don't think they forgot. I think they knew. And we start to wonder, well, what is really happening here? What's, as the story unfolds, it starts to become interesting. And hang with me, because I'll, I'll give you a hint. We do this very same thing. 
He said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Verse 5, so when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt, burnt offerings. I mean, they're like worshiping here. And they, and they brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. I want to I break some of that down for you. When you, when, you, when you see some of this, sometimes you have to, to go back to original language and understand. And John Bevere really helped me with this. When you, when you look at this, the, the, um, verse 1, he says, Come make us gods. Now, that, that word gods in the original language is a, is a name Elohim. Anyone ever heard of the name Elohim? Does any of you know that, that, that that's another name for God? In fact, it, it's, it's mentioned over, oh, about 2,600 times in the Old Testament, the word Elohim is mentioned. Uh, 20, oh, about 2,250 or so is referring to the, the one true God. And about 250 or so, the, it, the word Elohim is referring to like a foreign god or, a, or a, an idol or like a, a god, one of the, a pagan god. And so we start to see this, and it's, it becomes really interesting. One thing you have to know is in context, you have, to, you have to read a verse and decide, is he talking about the one true God, or is he talking about uh, other gods? Now, one thing, too, is, oh, put, that, put that verse back up there, that, uh, that Exodus 32, verse 1. It says, come make us gods. The, the word Elohim is a, is a plural form of God. And the first place we see it in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 1 when it says um, and uh, God created the heavens and the earth. It's an interesting place because we start to see uh, really a doctrine of the Trinity. That, it's, that, it's, that it is one, one God, but the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're all one. And in the beginning it says, and God created the heavens and the earth. It's the word Elohim. It's the plural form of God. And so you start to go, this is interesting. This is really interesting. And you read Exodus 32, and you, and you go on, come make us gods. And then when you come down, uh, Aaron, or the, the people said to Aaron, they said, this is your God, O Israel, if you bring up verse 4. This is your God, O Israel. And that word God there in the original language is the word Yahweh. And the word Yahweh, it, it, every place in the Bible that the word Yahweh is used it is always used to refer to the one true God. In fact, Yahweh, the, the Hebrews wouldn't even write the vows. It was so holy. And so this is the word. The only time that this word is ever used to describe a foreign God is right here. In this, or, or, or an idol, rather. It's right here in this chapter. In fact, they turn to this golden calf and they say, this is Yahweh. Is that like my mind just started going crazy when I started understanding this? That not only they, they said make us gods, they were saying make us Elohim, and and they were saying uh, when when they saw the calf come, they said this is Yahweh. Do you guys understand that this wasn't Yahweh? <laughs> they, they, they were sorely mistaken. Moses is on the mountain and and he's getting the download. What, what was he on the mountain getting? Do you guys remember? the Ten Commandments. God's having a showdown with Moses. And what is the, the golden calf's being formed and they're calling it Yahweh. And this is all of a sudden God starts talking to Moses and he hears what's happening. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses get down. Go get down. For your people whom 
whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your Yahweh, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Man, this is, a, this is a really interesting place. In fact, there is a, it's a critical juncture. I, I, I don't know if I, you have this quote, Brad. The, the critical juncture occurs when a human being either chooses to seek the living God or satisfies this desire by turning to a God or gods, thereby re- relieving his or her conscience. I mean, this is, this is what's happening. Moses was taking too long. And, and, and God was seeming distant. And so they fashioned something and called it God and started worshiping, worshiping it the same way they would have worshipped the one true God. But not only that, when you read it the, the, um, in, in verse 1 through 6, it, when it comes down and it says, and brought peace offerings and the, and the people sat down and, and drank and rose up to play. In the original language, this is revelry. This is, this is sexual sin. This was, this was like all of the stuff we've talked about in 1 Corinthians. They were worshiping God. They were sacrificing to God. And then they were said, you know what? Like, I think that God would approve of this. They made themselves a God, called it Yahweh, and then made up their own rules. Made up their, their own way that we're going to worship, their own standards. And said, you know what? This, you know, Yahweh approves. Well, Yahweh couldn't speak back because Yahweh was a golden calf, so obviously he approves. That's what was happening. Romans 1, verse 21 in the New Living Translation says, Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks, and they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. I want us to watch um, a video from uh, Messenger International, John Bevere's ministry, and they, they came up with like a short film that kind of captures this thought. It's about four minutes long. I think you'll enjoy it. That castle. Really? Isn't that phenomenal? So they taught you how to fold the napkins? Yes. Oh, wow. I actually, believe it or not, I know how to sew, fold the uh, Sydney Opera House. I don't believe you. No, no, I really do. I, I, I can totally show you. Stop. I'm very excited. Oh, good evening. Oh, good evening. Have you um, dined, dined with us before? Yes, actually, this is our favorite restaurant. Welcome back. Uh, no, babe, I'm pretty sure we've never been here before. No, oh, that's weird. Really? Oh, yeah, no, no, we haven't. Hmm. Oh, hold that thought just one second. I'm really, oh, yeah. no, really sure. sorry. Oh, no problem. Yeah. So what would you like to order this evening? Uh, yes, sir. So you know what? I think I would like to have that salmon. That, that sounds absolutely wonderful. Yeah. That's one of my favorites. Oh, great. Yeah, I like that. And for you, ma'am? Oh, um, I will have the filet mignon and the New York strip and the eight-ounce sirloin, all medium rare, please. Yes, fantastic. That is a great choice. <laughs> Thank you. I will get those right out to you. Babe, that's, that's kind of a lot of food, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not just ordering for one, you know. Wait, are you? Are you telling me that we're... Are we expecting? Yeah, he'll be here soon. It's a boy? Oh my. Yeah, of Oh my gosh, course. babe. Okay, uh, this has got to be. There he is the... now. Wait. Hi. What? Oh, bonjour. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm late. 
I ordered for you. Oh, thank you. You know me so well. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm sorry. Do you do, do you two know each other? Do you yeah, guys... he is my boyfriend from high school. Your your boyfriend from from high school. Babe, can I ask you what your boyfriend's doing? <laughs> <laughs> Did I come at a bad time? No. Yeah. <laughs> I really don't see the problem here, Justin. Yeah, I really don't see the problem here. Okay, who are you? Honey, stop, you're embarrassing me. I just wanted us to have one nice night at our favorite restaurant. Okay, first of all, I've never been to this restaurant. And, and second, what is going on? Hey, babe, sorry I'm late. Did I miss anything? Okay, seriously? Hey, you, uh, you, you take your hand off her and you, what is going on? Just sit down. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. Angela, is this is this some kind of joke? Are you are you actually seeing these guys? Justin, I've known these guys longer than I've known you. Wait, what? Are you seriously jealous right now? Jealous, Angela. In case you forgot, we're married. Okay, and we spend the majority of our time together. I'm, I love you more than any of my other boyfriends. That's why you'll always be my favorite. Your, your favorite? Is, is there anyone else I need to know about? Babe, is there a problem over here? Okay, really, the waiter? No, Dennis, we're All fine. right, seriously, no. Good, food will be right now. Oh, okay, so Angela, much. Angela, all right. These guys need to go, and we need to talk. We're done. I cannot believe this. You are being so selfish. Selfish? Why do you always have to make everything about you? You ruined our favorite restaurant. <sighs> Excuse me. I'm sorry. Yeah, I've, I've still never been to this restaurant. Thank you, thank you, Dennis. The salmon is delightful. So, did you propose to her here too? Okay. Haha. -ha. Isn't that what what happens? And we really. We're sitting here thinking, I had no idea. And God's sitting there thinking, hey, thanks that like I'm your favorite out of all your boyfriends. But I just, I, I wanted to be the only one. I wanted to be the, the only one, nothing else. And we're just going to take a couple minutes and talk about that. What, here's, here's, a, here's a thought. An idol can be anything we put before God in our lives. It is what we love, like, trust, desire, or give our attention to more than the Lord. And so here, here we're going to answer this question for a few minutes. What leads us to modern day idolatry? Wouldn't you want to know? What leads us to that place? And, and hopefully if we identify what leads us there, we can also identify how to, how to get out. Number one, stubbornness. Stubbornness is one of those things that can leave, lead us to modern-day idolatry. In fact, God there in Exodus 32, he, he calls the people, he says, you're a what? Stiff-necked 
people is what he says. It, it's, a, it's a place of, of, of stubbornness. It can be uh, synonymous with pride, with arrogance. Uh, I, I like this. It's, it, the, the dictionary says stubbornness is dogged determination not to change one's attitude or position on something. Did you see that with the, with the woman at the table? And she, we're, we're sitting here like, you're clueless. And somehow her stubbornness was was this dogged determination not to change one's attitude or position. Really, this is what we see in Scripture, is that stubbornness is a pushing back against the Word of God. God said, and we try to come up with our own ideas of what it means, and, and we just, well, you know, it means like that for somebody and this for somebody else, or, or, we, or we just blatantly say, well, that's not for me. Stubbornness is a pushing back against the Word of God. The reality is when someone knows the truth, knows the will of God, knows what God has spoken, and yet pushes back and doesn't obey, it is idolatry. The reason? Their will, agenda, wishes, and desires have been placed above God's. All of these things come before Him, and an idol is anything we put before God. That's what John Bevere so eloquently penned. This is what, um, this is what happened in, in 1 Samuel 15, King Saul. King Saul in the battle of the Amalekites. Some of you guys probably remember, remember the story. And King Saul was specifically told, you're going to go into battle against the Amalekites, and you are gonna, you're going to wipe them out completely. Um, every man, woman, and child the king, the queen, everybody. You're going to kill all of the cattle, all of the livestock. You're not going to take any of the plunder. It is going to be completely, utterly demolished off the face of the earth. Do you understand me, Saul? Yes, sir. We're clear. Yes, sir. Goes into battle, completely obliterates the Amalekites, except for the king, some of the animals that were the best, because he was going to sacrifice them to the Lord, and uh, and and a little bit of the plunder, just so that the the the, the armies could, uh, um, you know, be satisfied. You know, we want to be nice to them, and and so so then he comes before Samuel, and Samuel is like, "What's going on? What do I hear? I hear the bleeding of of sheep and." And he's like, oh, that's just this. He's like, I thought God told you to, to like, wipe them all out. And he's like, oh, well, these, this, is just for, this is for a sacrifice unto God. This, this is for worship. Like, he totally would understand that this is for worship. And this is what is said to, to King Saul, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. So Samuel said, has the, Lord, uh, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. In other words, I'd rather like you have obedience in your life than come and, and, and sing the songs and, and worship. I'd rather oh, start with obedience. He, he says this, and then he says, and, and to heed than the fat of rams, verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And everyone can say, well, Jonathan didn't make it up. It's in the Bible. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. 
So stubbornness. Number two, what, what else leads us to this place of idolatry? Not only is that stubbornness against the word of the Lord, but number two, and this is a huge one, discontentment. Discontentment. The dictionary definition says it's a lack of satisfaction with one's possessions, status, or situation. The opposite, contentment, is feeling or showing satisfaction with one's positions, status, or situation. Paul says it like this in in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Maybe you've read this before. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then he says, he goes on and says, the secret, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Discontent. I'm not going to take a show of hands, but is, is that something... That we can look at where it's at least an indicator? Is there any area where you're just like a lack of contentment is, is front and center with your job, with your marriage, with your children, with your finances, with your food? With your, I mean, can we go down a list of things that, where we're discontent? But then number three, as we're leading towards a potential danger of modern-day idolatry is this. It's a, it's a word that we don't use very often, covetousness. When's the last time you used covetousness in a sentence? Yeah? You're like, never. <laughs> covetousness. Covetousness, to, to, to covet. Here's the, here's the definition. A strong desire of obtaining and possessing some supposed good. This is what Colossians, Paul wrote to the uh, to the Colossian church, verse, uh, or chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is what? Idolatry. Idolatry. In John Bevere's book, Killing Kryptonite, which I'm, I'm toying with the idea of doing a, um, a group study in, in the fall, um, Page, uh, page 112 in his book, and he, he quotes from a, a commentary, the CCE commentary, and, and, it, and it defines covetousness like this. It implies a self-idolizing, grasping spirit. It becomes something where it's, it's all about me. It's this self-idolizing, and this is grasping, like I, 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 I've got to have. We, we will grasp for what we believe we need to be satisfied. We'll seek out Pleasure, wealth, material gain, fame, status, position, reputation, companionship, fulfillment, power, authority, lust, etc. Anyone feeling like the, the, the Holy Spirit warm, fuzzy goosebumps yet? It's like, oh, I, you know, I start to think, um, think about some of this. First, listen to this. An idol takes the place God deserves. It can be the provider of happiness, comfort, peace, provision, authority, respect, and so forth. I think, well, what is, what's, like, what's the example? Like, when does, I mean, we've been talking about some of the big sins. When does something start to become an idol? Like, like when, when does, like, like, food become an idol? 
When, when is it more than just, man, I, I, you know, I think I'm in the mood for a steak. When is it more than, than uh, I'd like to have a dessert? When does it cross the line from just a desire uh, or, or a need to now it becomes, man, I think the, the moment that that thing is fulfilling something in you that only God was designed to fulfill. The, the moment that, that, I mean, when does, when does TV or music become an idol? I mean, to, to sit down with your spouse and watch an episode of something, is that idolatry? Well, not necessarily. But when, when, when TV or music or any of those things starts to fulfill something in you that only God was designed to fulfill. When, when, when God wants to be your source of peace and your source of joy and, and, and anybody ever get done with work and you're just like, I just need to unwind. I just need to, I need to find, like, I, I don't have peace. I need to find peace. And so you throw on a comedy or, or I, I don't have peace. I need to find peace. And so I get lost in, a, you know, in, in eight episodes of something in one night. And right, you know, like, when, when does it start to, it's when it's replacing what God designed for himself to fulfill in you. When does alcohol Oh no, he's not going. He's not going to go there. When does alcohol become an idol? Now we can talk about uh, like anyone agree that drunkenness is a sin and debauchery. Like we're like yeah 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 we, we okay. Does anyone agree that 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 just that alcohol in and of itself the Bible does not say is a sin by itself that alcohol is not a sin? Does anyone agree with that? Yeah, we all we all would agree with that. When does it become an idol? Because we agree about drunkenness and debauchery. When does alcohol become an idol? The moment that alcohol starts to replace that thing in you that is only designed for God to fulfill. I mean, this has caused me to have to say, okay, God. <laughs> what is it? We, start, we, we, look, we, we look, turn our nose down on somebody that, that's struggling with alcohol, and yet we're struggling with eight episodes of something on TV. You know? at, at what point? And it's this place where we just say, Holy Spirit, I don't want anything. I don't want anything to be before you. What else, what else do we put before God? What else do we put before God? Man, do we ever put our, our spouses? Well, probably not our spouses, no. What about our children? Do we put our children before God sometimes? We say, well, no, no, it's not. Man, we, how, how often do we organize our lives around like, like seven different activities for one child, not, not to mention the other ones? And, and, and eventually, well, what about our, our kids fulfilling something, like some sense of identity in, in society? And, and, and I'm a good father or a good mother because of this and, and because, I'm, because I'm, you know, all crazy with busyness. And uh, when, do, when do they become? An idol. You know, ministry can become an idol. You know, my job as a pastor <laughs> can become idol worship if it starts to become about me and not about him. Anything can become an idol. There's this, there's this place where we have to just go before the Lord and not in a place of condemnation, but where the Holy Spirit can just say, Jonathan, I want the attention that you've been giving that. Jonathan, I, I want to be your peace when that thing has been providing peace. Jonathan, I want to be your source of whatever when, when you've been turning to your spouse for that 
I want to be that. A believer. Oh, let me. I want to say this um, from Lisa Bevere. Idolatry is what you draw your strength from or give your strength to. A believer is drawn into idolatry when he allows his heart to be stirred with discontentment and looks for satisfaction outside of the obedience to God. This satisfaction could be a person, a possession, or an activity. I want to give you three quick thoughts, and we're out. Before we, I don't want to leave you like, ugh. How do we, how do we reverse it? Man, if, if the Lord identifies something, you want to just be like, I, I want to reverse that. Here's three things. Number one, and in, in how do I keep from or return from idolatry? A heart of repentance. And, it, and it's a heart. I, I think we always need to have that, that heart. The heart of repentance says this, break my heart for the things that break yours. I mean, that, not, not only in the world, like to, to have me a heart of compassion for the kids starving in Africa, but what about in my own life? Lord, break my heart for the things that break yours. Would you give me a heart of, of uh, repentance. This is, we talked about this a couple weeks ago with, with uh, that not only does our sin grieve the Holy Spirit, but then he asks us to have a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Oh God, I just want relationship and that thing is keeping me from you. That's the goal is, is, that, is that my heart would ache when, when, it's, when I'm, I'm against something that, that you're wanting me, right? And, and so we just, so we come together in relationship because I have a heart of repentance. Number two, a heart of obedience. And that was something that Saul, King Saul struggled with. It's, it's really, it's the highest form of worship is what obedience is. The first time we ever hear of worship is when, is when Abraham is asked to sacrifice his, his son Isaac. Is the first time worship was ever mentioned in the Bible was when he obeyed God. It's the highest form of worship. It's not just hearers of his word, but what? But doers. It's like doing exactly what he said. If we're wanting to keep from or return from idolatry, it's this heart of obedience that says, oh God, I just want to do what your Bible says. I want to be doers, not just a hearer. And this last thing, and it was something, it was a theme in worship today. Watch this, a, think, a heart of thankfulness. A heart of thankfulness. Content in any season and any situation. It's not bad to have more. It's bad when more has you. That's that place where we just say, oh, God, I want to, just like Paul, I want to be content whether I have a lot or whether I have a little. God, I just, I, I don't want any area of discontent. It, it's okay to be thinking, man, I, you know, I'd like an upgrade on, on a vehicle. Or I'd like an upgrade on a home. Or, or I, you know, I, I don't have children and I want, I want some. Or, 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 I, or I, I have children in my home and I want less. Or, or maybe, oh, I don't know. I mean, that's not, right? But it's this heart that just says, God, I, I am so thankful for what you've given me. When we were in worship, Becky and I just, as they were singing about thanks, uh, Thanksgiving, we just started saying, Lord, thank you. Thank you for our home. Thank you for our children. Thank you for our finances and bank accounts and savings accounts. And thank you for provision. Thank you for this church. Thank you for, right? And a heart of thankfulness, a heart of contentment will keep you from modern-day idolatry and when you see an idol, then you destroy it. Unless it's your children, then don't. Don't destroy them. 
What's it look like to destroy an idol? It's really modern day idolatry really has to do with the heart. And it's laying it before him. It's being willing. Sometimes I recognize something that's a potential idol, and I'll just say, okay, God, um, I'm going to go without it for a week or a month or 90 days. And, and when, when I start to feel that twinge, like, oh, that's going to be hard. I'm like, this could be one. This could be one. I challenge you. If the Lord's highlighted something to you, maybe it's, maybe it's something as trivial as TV or music, or maybe it's like, maybe food has become an idol. Man, food can't be an idol. It's on every, every food network, right? Like, they, they make shows off of it. I'm sure that can't be an idol. I mean, maybe it's food, or, or maybe it's a relationship, or maybe it's, I mean, if it's children, maybe you just say, okay, God, I'm going to start to reorient my schedule around you instead of around my kid. Whatever it might be, would you allow Holy Spirit this week? And, and this weekend, when, it, when you get to have some downtime and, and, and have a little bit of a, of a vacation day, would you say, God, I don't want anything to affect my heart in a way that you're supposed to affect my heart. I don't want a false peace. I don't want a false satisfaction. I don't want a, I don't want a false sense of accomplishment or a false sense of anything. Lord, any of those feelings that are supposed to come from you want to come from you. And Lord, would you not let anything creep in? Let's stand as the worship team's coming. Would you just allow Holy Spirit even right now to identify anything? Man, I'm just, this week, I'm just like, Lord, I just want anything that's not of you. Lord, I want revival and I don't want anything to hinder. Would you say, Lord, is there anything? Is there anything that's even a potential danger of idolatry? Is there anything that's a potential danger that could hinder revival in my home and in my church? God, I just, we just want to get rid of it. Lord, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your closeness. Lord, show me when my job can be an idol, when my family can be an idol. Lord, would you show that to me? If you're finding yourself with lack of peace and maybe anxiety and things like that and you're turning to something or someone to to pull you out of that check yourself because God wants to be your peace he wants to be your source your strength Holy Spirit we just lay all these things before you right now we give you glory and honor and praise to this house you alone are worthy Lord I thank you that that your spirit convicts to draw us close and that the devil condemns and brings guilt and shame to draw us away. And we come against every assignment of the devil that we want to give guilt and shame and condemnation. We just send that to where Jesus would send it. And Lord, we receive your love even in the form of conviction that says, oh God, yeah, I want to be close to you because we know that you want to be closer to us than we could ever even imagine. Jesus name. Pastor Kelly and the team are going to lead us and if you'd like prayer for anything any area of breakthrough, any area of prayer we'll have some people available for prayer in the altar. Thank you so much for being here. Let's close with one song here. Oh Pastor Kelly is out there. I knew I was going to do that. Anna, would you lead us? Thank you.
continue to just worship in prayer and pray in here. If, if you want to come up for prayer, you're welcome. If you want to sit out there, you're welcome. Just go with God. Psalm 91 says that he commands his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. He, he puts a hedge of protection about you. He hems you in before and behind. Lord, I thank you for supernatural protection and blessing. Would you go before us now and make all the crooked places straight? It's because of Jesus we pray. Amen. Stay as long as you will. And uh, we love you guys. We'll see you next week.